When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. All right, so Matt, which one of Santa's reindeers has the worst manners? Hmm. I don't know. Blitzen. Rude off. <laughs> good evening everybody and welcome to the graveyard thank you for joining us tonight my name is adam and my name's matt now pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. <laughs> All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Man, I'm doing really, really well. Good. How about you? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. It's that up and down season of Texas winters where mm-hmm. it's cold one day and then you're sweating the next day. So yep. it was a sweaty day today. <laughs> <laughs> you go out in jeans expecting it to be chilly and nope it's 78 degrees so gotta love texas yeah yeah but when you left the house it was like 40 yeah exactly exactly you know that's the thing so you gotta have those breakaway pants or you remember the pants that you could zip the bottom of the leg off and make uh-huh, shorts yeah. out of that's oh, what yeah, you need i've got some yeah <laughs> i don't have any anymore i used to yeah they're like they're fishing pants. Oh yeah, yeah. Not that I ever go fishing. <laughs> well, just in case. I have the pants. Yeah, yeah. You got to. So we want to say real quick: go check out the Podbelly Network at Podbelly dot com. Go search through their website, and you can find some different shows to listen to. We're proud to be members of the Podbelly Network and to be affiliated with these shows. So go check them out, podbelly.com. We also want to thank tonight's sponsors, Magic Spoon, Best Fiends, and Every Plate. And we'll talk a little bit more about them throughout the episode. Um, while you're on the internet, finishing up very last-minute Christmas shopping and all that, go give us a rate and review on iTunes. Um, if you can give us a five-star rating there and then just say something, it really helps bring us up the charts and it helps get us more visible so that more people can find us by accident when they're looking for different shows though. Oh, Hey, look, graveyard tales. And then they can check us out. So that's all, all we need it for. We don't know why it does that, but something with their algorithm, it brings us up the chart so that people can see us more. And, you know, we've always said we want to get as many people into the graveyard as we can. We're a little greedy in that way. We want to yep. grow our audience. And while you're on the internet, go to patreon.com slash graveyard tales. Sign up to be a monthly patron of our show and you can get a bunch of bonus content. We try to do a bunch of episodes every month. And if you sign up for $10 a month, you can get the video version of us recording each one of these episodes. And like on this one, 
there will be a little bit of talk about liquor in the beginning of the episode. So if you want to hear us talk about whiskey and moonshine and stuff, then you can do that if you're a $10 patron. Uh, We don't cut as much out of the episodes either. So you get some of the mistakes we make and you get to, like Matt likes to say, you get to see how the sausage is made. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. All right, Matt. So let's talk about one of our sponsors tonight, Magic Spoon. Now, growing up, I ate cereal all the time. Like that was, if I got up, it would be cereal. I didn't want anything else. I didn't want stupid eggs and bacon, nothing. I wanted sugary cereal. And that seemed to be the best for me, even, I mean, through high school. But as we get older, I mean, I still love cereal, but I can't eat all the the sugars and the carbs and everything that's in these cereals and especially midnight snack dinner like i would like to do so the good thing is we found magic spoon and magic spoon it's like drinking a protein shake but you're eating it instead it's great because it's got low carbs and everything else yeah, it's the crunchiest protein shake you'll ever try. Amen. <laughs> and and the best. Yeah, at least right. in my opinion. Best tasting. Um, so, you know, Magic Spoon is great because it has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Now, that's phenomenal. Oh, if, yeah. You know, if you've been low-carbing, keto whatever then when i say those numbers then your ears should just perk up right because you know those numbers are music to your ears especially when we're talking about cereal oh yeah and it's only it's only got 140 calories a serving so like like i said keto friendly gluten free grain free soy free and low carb with magic spoon You have so many flavors to choose from that are all fantastic. And when you order, you can build your own box. You can choose what flavors you want and have your own custom bundle. You can choose from cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and our favorite, maple waffle. Oh, maple waffle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now... Cookies and cream and maple waffle were limited edition flavors that Magic Spoon has brought back permanently. And I I assure you, if you if you like if you like any of those flavors, you're gonna be satisfied. But the cookies and cream and the maple waffle, hands down, you gotta try them. Oh yeah, you've got to try them. Oh yeah, I'm so Um, glad they're permanent now and not just a limited time thing because I can get it every time and it's great. That's right. That's right. And and cinnamon is also one of my faves because my favorite cereal is a cinnamon-based cereal. Um, so I, I really dig it. Um, but, you know, if you if you like the fruity versions of, of cereals that are out there, you'll you'll like the fruity version of Magic Spoon. Michael loves uh, that one. It's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, my midnight snack go-to is always cereal. Uh, I had I had a bowl last night. Yep. You know. Watching TV before bed, ten thirty. I got a bowl of cereal. I'm sure <laughs> I'll have just, a have a bowl when is, we're done here. 
Yeah, no. it is. It is just. It is just my thing. And Magic Spoon makes it not only great but healthy. So to get your own custom bundle of cereal and try it today, just go to magicspoon.com/grave. That's G-R-A-V-E, and be sure to use our promo code Grave at checkout, and you will save five dollars off of your order. That's right. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. What other cereal company can you get that from? That's amazing. So like Matt said, just go to magicspoon.com slash grave, G-R-A-V-E, and use our promo code grave and you can save $5. Um, so Matt, that's all I got, brother. So why don't you tell us what are we talking about tonight? Okay. So Adam and I are going to look into the phenomenon. All right. I'm, I'm giving everybody an oppor- opportunity to do the thing, you know, the phenomenon of Foo Fighters, not the band, yep, not Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl is not joining us tonight, so if this is your first time listening and thought this was going to be an interview, we apologize. Matt, I have a surprise for you. Dave Grohl is right outside. No, he's not. I wish he was. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Um, He's down there eating dinner with my wife and kid while I'm up here doing this. You're in trouble, Matt. Dude, I am. I'm going to be single real quick. But we are going to talk about UFOs during World War II. Right. So we're, we're going to flip the script a little bit tonight. Um, I'm going to go over the history and so forth, and Adam is going to cover some sightings. And then together, we're going to discuss some theories about what Foo Fighters possibly were. Um, and, and it's pretty interesting because it's all over the map. It really is, um, yeah. And and we still don't really understand what they were. No, but there's there's some pretty unique ideas. I should have put in like a record scratch sound effect when you said flip the script. Do the thing. Yeah, that's right. Just imagine that's there. I don't. That's. <laughs> yeah, add your own sound effect here. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. But Foo Fighters. I mean, the term Foo Fighters. And and yes, it is where Dave Grohl got the name mm-hmm. for the band. It, it You know, it's not some, it doesn't have multiple meanings. This is it. And I remember him saying, since we're, you just mentioned Dave Grohl, they, he did an interview at like his second or third album. And they asked him about the name. And he said, I'll be honest with you. And he goes, I, I just came up with that name in, in the beginning, and I really wish I'd have come up with a better name than that. Um, but I didn't expect it to go anywhere, and here we are three albums later, and we're stuck with Foo Fighters. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It was like Jethro Tull. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, they just they, they couldn't get gigs, so the, their manager would keep changing their name. Yeah. And that was the first name they had used that they got a call back for a second gig right and so they they kept it <laughs> man you, you do I, i've had some weird band names so i understand i understand yeah, yeah. 
But so so what? What what's a, Foo Fighters? I mean, you know what? Where did they come up with this? Well, the term Foo Fighters actually comes from cartoonist Bill Holman's comic strip Smokey Stover. Now, the nonsense word foo would frequently appear on signs and menus and even drawn into artwork throughout the comic. And even Smokey would refer to himself as a foo fighter. Now he now Smokey's a fireman and and his famous line was where there's foo, there's fire. Okay. So again, it's just and 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 Holman had nonsense words all through this particular mm-hmm. comic strip. But he never fully explained his use of this word, and it was speculated that it was a play on the French word foo, F-E-U, which means fire. Right. But there's also a connection with the term foobar, standing for, you know, effed up beyond all recognition. Right. So the use of foo by military personnel to describe something that is messed up isn't that much of a leap. And and Smokey was commonly found as nose art on many American bomber planes. Um, so this radar operator for the uh, 415th Night Fighter Squadron that Donald J. Myers is credited with using the term Foo Fighters to describe the unidentified flying objects reported by Allied Forces pilots during World War II. Right. So that's that's where the name comes from. It, and, it's and interesting some, how uh, just a nonsense phrase like that uh, became. And, and I mean, I guess you could say that happens with a lot of things, but just mm-hmm. a random nonsense thing that somebody said, then it's got a mythos all its own now. And that that's what we what we have termed these whatever they are that we'll talk about in a minute. But yeah, Foo Fighters. Somebody probably just yelled that out. Ah, it's a Foo Fighter. And then it stuck. Yeah. So so these pilots would would see these things and report back that they're seeing them. And the radar operators would say, there's nothing there. You know, mm-hmm. the, we don't see what you see. So, you know, they would they would describe what it is. And and the first recorded sighting was by Lieutenant Fred Ringwald, and he was riding as an observer in a night fighter uh, piloted by Lieutenant Ed Schuletter with Lieutenant Donald J. Myers on the radar. Now, it was a late November evening in 1944, and it was a little cloudy, and, and there was a partial moon. And they were roaming the Rhine Valley just north of Strasbourg on the French-German border when Ringwald said, I wonder what those lights are over there in the hills. <laughs> That's how it always begins. Hey, I yeah. wonder what those are. What the heck is that, man? <laughs> but accor- what is that, Bobby? Dadgummit. <laughs> Bobby, you see that weird thing up there in the sky? <laughs> Seven o'clock in the morning, that light still ain't right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but according to American Legion magazine and their story on the sightings from 1945, this is this is where it began. Right. So 
there were eight to ten of these lights in a row glowing fiery orange. And then Schuler saw them off of his right wing. Now, their initial reaction was to check the onboard radar as well as with Allied ground control, but both came back with zero indication of anything being in the skies aside from them. That's got to creep you out. Uh, Yeah, you're seeing it. It's not on your radar. Mm. It's not on the ground radar. But despite the confirmation, there was still the thought that these could be some sort of aerial weapon created by the Germans. And just as Schuletter began to reposition the plane in a defense position, the lights disappeared. Now, at first, they said nothing. Because they were afraid that they would be ostracized for, for talking about this. But then the sightings began to spread throughout the unit. Now, Robert Wilson was a war correspondent with the Associated Press. He wrote an article called Balls of Fire Stalk U.S. Fighters in Night Assaults Over Germany, which ran on the front page of the New York Times. And that this was on January 2nd, 1945. The article suggests the idea that this was something the German military was responsible for, while also sharing the firsthand accounts of U.S. airmen who have had a lot more uncertainty that this was even a man-made object. Lieutenant Myers, the radar operator, he was quoted in the article saying, when I first saw the things off my wingtips, I had the horrible thought that a German on the ground was ready to press a button and explode them. But they don't explode or attack us. They just seem to follow us like will-o'-the-wisps. Yeah, I, it, it has the, the similarities to will-o'-the-wisp that you hear about. But, you know, will-o'-the-wisp was in a field or on a sailing vessel. Right, but it, it was just that light that seemed to just move right along with you. You know, yeah. you, you couldn't really shake it. Um, you know, and they said, you know, it didn't matter how fast the plane was going, that these little balls were able to keep up with them. Right. Now, a lot of time and effort has gone into debunking the Foo Fighters. The, you know, the idea that these were being used against any particular side or country was dispelled when investigation showed that both the Japanese and German pilots had also reported similar sightings of their own. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, if you've got, if you, essentially, if you've got your enemy going, hey, what's this? <laughs> then, then, then maybe they didn't make it. Yeah, right. You could, <laughs> you could think, okay, maybe it is a German weapon, but as soon as a German uh, officer goes, what the heck is that? Then you go, oh, well, <laughs> nope, I was thinking the same thing. I thought it was you. And he's like, oh, I thought it was you. So the name Foo Fighter became a catch-all for any UFO sighting for the time. It originally serves to describe these specific sightings that look like these glowing orb-like entities or fireballs. Right. Yeah. Now, the balls of fire phenomenon reported from the Pacific theater of operations differed from what the Foo Fighters were reported in Europe. Now, the 
the ball of fire, quote, resembled a large burning sphere, which just hung in the sky. Mm-hmm. But And it was reported to sometimes follow aircraft. Now, on one occasion, the gunner of a B-29 aircraft managed to hit one with gunfire, causing it to break up into several large pieces, which fell on buildings below and set them on fire. So there was speculation that the phenomena could be related to the Japanese fire balloons campaign, also known as Fugo, which Adam and I discussed before. Absolutely. Um, But as with European Foo Fighters, no aircraft was reported to having been attacked by a ball of fire. You know, reports of these things kept coming in. It wasn't just that one time. It, It happened often. And the objects flew alongside the aircraft at 200 miles per hour. So they would keep up with these fast airplanes and they were red or orange or green and they appeared singularly or with as many as 10 others in formation. Like Matt mentioned in that first sighting, there was multiple ones. Now people have said they often outmaneuvered the airplanes that they were chasing. And again, like Matt said, they never showed up on radar. Well, and you know, but that that was one of the reasons why the pilots didn't believe it was something man-made. Yeah. Is because I mean, we we talk about this when we talk about other UFOs where the maneuvers that these these crafts are able to make aren't you can't reproduce that with you know, a, a any aircraft that's mm-hmm. known, you know, around the world. And sometimes the body couldn't handle the G-forces that was right. put on it by that maneuver. Uh, yeah, I mean that that that's definitely true. Um so when they're seeing these things, I mean they know exactly what they can do in those planes. Mm-hmm. And you know, especially in you know 1944, you know, they were they were limited as to what their maneuver n- maneuverability was depending on what kind of airplane they were in. And they're seeing these things jump all around. I mean, as a pilot, you immediately think that's okay. That is not an aircraft that, you know, we've ever seen. And we, you know, here we are military pilots. We know just about everything out there and we've never seen anything that could do this. Right. Right. And the military, they did end up taking these sightings seriously at first, mm-hmm. you know, Matt, Matt's right. People didn't really talk about it there at first because, like we see with a lot of other sightings, even up to today, people are worried about their jobs. They're worried about the stigma that it might bring. But when multiple aviators started bringing this to the attention, they did take it seriously because they thought the military thought, oh, maybe it's a an enemy weapon. But as Matt said, when the enemy then saw it, they went, oh, it's not that. So it's, they, it's not a weapon. Yeah, it's not a weapon. What is it? Or if it is a weapon, it's not a weapon of anybody that we know. Now, this next part comes from Military Wiki, and it says in its January 15th, 1945 edition, Time magazine carried a story entitled Foo Fighter, in which it reported that the, quote, balls of fire had been following USAAF night fighters for over a month and that the pilots had named it the Foo Fighter. 
according to time. Descriptions of the phenomenon varied, but the pilots agreed that the mysterious lights followed the aircraft closely at high speed. Some scientists at the time, and we'll discuss this more in depth toward the end, but some scientists at the time rationalized the sightings as an illusion probably caused by after images of dazzle um, caused by flak burst or St. Elmo's fire or whatever. Will of the Wisp. But those didn't hold up, and we'll talk uh, about that when Matt brings up the theories toward the end. Now, the balls of fire phenomena reported from the Pacific Theater, um, like Matt said, differed a little bit. Um, and they ended up like those would just hang in the air around the craft mm-hmm. rather than following. Um but let's look at a few of the sightings. There was one that a little bit earlier than where it got the one Matt talked about where it got its name, Foo Fighters. But there was a sighting in September of 1941 in the Indian Ocean. And it was similar to some of the uh, later reports of them. But from the deck of the SS Pulaski, which was a Polish merchant vessel that was transporting British troops, Two sailors reported a, quote, strange globe glowing with greenish light about half the size of the full moon as it appears to us, end quote. They alerted a British officer who watched the object's movements um, and, and it moved with them for over an hour. So, Matt, that similar but a little bit different because it mm-hmm. stayed with them for about an hour and... A lot of these reports of Foo Fighters, it wasn't that long. It wasn't like a brief, just boom, there's a flash and gone. But it wasn't an hour or more of hanging out with the ship. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, what What could that have been? I mean, you wouldn't expect any aircraft to just be able to hover for that length of time. Right. Without giving itself away. Yep. Even and, a helicopter, you would. Right. And you would hear the helo or you would it would run out of gas or something right and and then uh, that's my thing why why would a helicopter just be hanging out you Mm -hmm. know and and not not cloaking its position or anything it's like hey we got this cool helicopter it it burns with this bright green light yep we're just hey, going to blind great. the ship. Everybody's going to be able to see it so well. <laughs> yeah. Shoot it right out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're hoping we just tactically blind everybody. It, it's a new um, new thing we're trying. It's called tactical blinding. Um, <laughs> now, uh, a guy named Charles R. Bastion of the 8th Air Force reported one of the first encounters with Foo Fighters over the Belgium-Holland area. He described them as, quote, two fog lights flying at high rates of speed that could change direction rapidly. Now, during debriefing, his intelligence officer told him that two RAF night fighters had reported the same thing, and it was later reported to British newspapers. So it seems as though we've got around the same time a bunch of people noticing and reporting these things all at once so while we do know that one guy is kind of responsible for naming them foo fighters he may or may not have been the first one to see it right or the first one to report it but we know it's the most famous one because of the name 
Now, career U.S. Air Force pilot Dwayne Adams often related that he had witnessed two occurrences of a bright light which paced his aircraft for about half an hour and then rapidly ascended into the sky. Both incidents occurred at night, both over the South Pacific, and both were witnessed by the entire aircraft crew. The first sighting occurred shortly after the end of World War II while Adams piloted a B-52 bomber. The second sighting occurred in the early 1960s when Adams was piloting a KC-135 tanker. So that's something I'll talk about here in a second, too, is that it was it's not just World War II. These things have been seen afterward. But one of the things that I'm curious about, Matt, that I'll ask you now and we'll see what you think. World War Two was a drastic change for aviation. They they had to drastically change their uh, their aircraft because World War One they had biplanes, you know, the dual wing planes, and that's where you get the World War One flying ace and all that stuff mm-hmm. from. But World War Two they started having these bombers these fast-run fighter jets, do you think that the change in aviation style brought attention from potentially something else that wanted to just say, hey, what what, what are these things? Man, they evolved quickly. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that's possible? I'd say it's possible. Um because you you're right, you did see a, a dramatic leap in how uh you know air air warfare was mm-hmm. conducted between World War One and World War Two. And and so it might have been a curiosity yeah. to to uh, you know an an alien civilization that was observing and this was a good way to get a, an up close and personal look. Right. Now, on February 28, 1942, just prior to its participation in the Battle of the Java Sea, the USS Houston reportedly saw a large number of strange, unexplained yellow flares and lights which illuminated the sea for miles around. So again, we've got some, it's out at sea, but mm-hmm. it's big yellowish balls of light that kind of look like flares, but a flare isn't going to hang out for that length of time. Yeah. It's going to burn out pretty quickly and it's certainly not going to be so bright that it's going to illuminate the sea for miles for miles. Right. Now a report was made from the Solomon islands in 1942 by United States Marine Corps, Stephen J. Brickner following an air raid alarm. Brickner and others witnessed about 150 objects grouped in lines of 10 or 12 objects each, seeming to wobble, end quote, as they moved. Brickner reported that the objects looked to be of polished silver and seemed to move a little faster than common Japanese aircraft. Now, another one is on December 17, 1944, near Brysok, Germany. A pilot was flying at approximately 800 feet when he saw a... Five 
when he saw five or six flashing red and green lights in a T-shape. The light seemed to follow him, closing in, quote, to about eight o'clock at a thousand feet, end quote, before disappearing and inexplicably uh, as inexplicably as they came. Then on December 22nd, two more flight crews sighted lights. One crew near Hagnow reported two lights in a large orange glow, seeming to rise from the earth to 10,000 feet and then tailing the fighter for approximately two minutes. So that's another one where it is chasing the pilot yeah. at, at speed. And this one rose from the ground. Mm-hmm. Or at least it appeared that it was coming from the ground. Right. Um, so it, it was almost as if it was either hovering right above or it had landed and then saw him and went, oh, hey, I'm going to go follow that. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what he's doing. Now, after that, the lights peel off and turn away and they fly along level for a few minutes and then go out. They appear to be under perfect control at all times, he says. Um, according to Keith Chester's strange company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. So there are books out there, if you want to go check it out, about this that may go a little more in depth than we are. This says, and then there was Lieutenant Samuel A. Krasny's experience. A wingless, cigar-shaped object, object glowing red just a few yards off the plane's wingtip. Lieutenant Krasny, justifiably spooked, instructed the pilot to attempt evasive maneuvers, but the glowing object stayed right next to the jet for several minutes before it, quote, flew off and disappeared. Adam, let's take a minute and talk about one of our longtime sponsors, Best Fiends. Oh, yeah. Now, everybody at some point plays this smartphone game. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure, you know, you, you've played something that's occupied your time, but, you know, it, it, that's that's really all it's doing is it's just occupying your time. Um, but if you really want to get into something that you can play and compete and really enjoy, then you should go and check out Best Fiends. Right. Now, playing Best Fiends during the holiday season, it, it's, it's perfect because it can be the little pick-me-up when you need a break from all the holiday rush, you know. Christmas shopping, holiday parties, uh, you know, what, whatever. You know, every, seeing family. Lord, seeing seeing all the family. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get away. You just gotta, yeah, you just got to sneak away to the bathroom and play Best Fiends for a little while. Yeah. And th- hey, you've been in there for two hours. Is everything okay? And, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. And the whole time you're going, dang it. Oh, man. Dang it! Got him! Ha! And they're wondering, killing slugs. Yeah, they're wondering what the heck you're doing in there. <laughs> but Best Fiends is—it's a lot of fun, and it's got a very unique gameplay. It's—it's it, it's that match three puzzle style game, but along with that, it's got you know an actual storyline. It's got collectible fiends and tons of fun puzzles. I mean, you know, it, it's. It's quite possibly the best puzzle game that's out there. That's true. And one of the reasons that it's the best is if you don't have any Wi-Fi, like if you're at grandma's house and grandma's still got dial-up or 
She just doesn't use Wi-Fi because she has no idea what it is. She still writes handwritten letters and stuff like that. It's not a problem. You don't need Wi-Fi to play Best Fiends. You can play it wherever and whenever you want with the offline mode. So, I mean, I I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty far along in the game. But like we've said, Ashley and Amanda whip our butts all the time. So I'm not even going to say what level I'm at because they will hear this and then start laughing at me and (laughs) say, oh, I'm like 2,000 ahead of you. So I'm I'm not going to say, but I do play it all the time and I love it. And I always love the fact that there is a fresh challenge waiting for you. They change it all the time and they're always adding new levels. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're not gonna run out of of levels to play. You know, it just keeps building and building and building. And I'm with you. I, I hate having to hand my phone to a man and go, please, be you, you beat this. I've mm-hmm. been playing the same level for the last four days. Yeah. <laughs> and I cannot get past it. But Graveyard Tells listeners can go and download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. That's right. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So this time they saw a vessel, kind of a cigar-shaped vessel, which we now hear about cigar-shaped craft all the time. Right. Now, those are a bunch of quick reports that we got during the World War II era. But here's one they've got more in-depth on that I wanted to bring up to prove that this is not just something that happened in World War II. And Matt and I talked about that during the research of this. This is not a, a phenomenon that's over with. This is a phenomenon that continues to happen. Now, this is from the New York Post, and it says video obtained by the Daily Mail shows a pulsating teardrop shaped object zip around a pair of FedEx pilots who spotted the UFO March 19th in 2020. Um, They spotted it out their windshield while they were flying near Monterey, though the interloper never popped up on the plane's radar. So, again, we've got a, a, a similarity there to what happened during World War II. Now, it says at one point, the, quote, brilliant yellow-white plasma, end quote, like object, appears to rapidly descend from the sky to match the altitude of the two cargo planes, then flash a beam of light in their direction. The orb proceeds to zoom alongside the aircrafts for more than half an hour before disappearing with a flash of pinkish-purple light. So this one actually sent like a beam toward the airplanes and it stayed with them for a half an hour and then it just disappeared. Now this goes on to say that footage of the encounter was later analyzed by experts at the National Aviation Reporting Center of Anomalous Phenomena or NARCAP, um, a nonprofit that studies UFO sightings and works toward developing safety protocols during such rare and inexplicable occurrences. The pilots have not come forward with their identities, according to the Daily Mail, due to stigma surrounding such controversial events, which is just a shame. 
like we've talked so many times before, it's a shame that there's such a stigma around reporting stuff like this. This says, however, NARCAP Executive Director Director Ted Rowe assured the UK outlet that their account of the floating orb is credible, coming from two career pilots with nearly 30 years of experience combined between the U.S. Air Force and private sectors. Their claims were said to be very consistent with what pilots have been reporting for over 100 years. Now, flying a Boeing 767, the first officer, quote, believed that it was a meteor and began to say so when it suddenly stopped near the same altitude as the aircraft, end quote. Then the UFO projected an illuminating beam of bright white light on the aircraft and appeared to take a collision heading, the report added. Now, it says that that then prompted the men to take a defensive attitude and prepare for evasive control inputs. So rather than colliding with the plane, the orb took a turn and paced alongside them at a distance of about 1,000 to 2,000 feet away, going 575 miles per hour at 37,000 feet. Says, quote, I thought it was a shooting star, but then it stopped. A pilot can be heard telling his colleague during the almost five-minute video. So there is a video of that. Um, If you go check our sources, you can find the video in there from the uh, New York Post article. But, Matt, it's kind of cool to me that we have such a recent, I mean, that's from 2020, and right. it mimics the sightings during World War II almost to a T. The only thing we didn't hear about in some of the sightings from World War II is the beam of light that hit the ships, but maybe it did, and they just didn't report it, or maybe we don't have the reports of the ones that did get illuminated by the beam of light. Yep, that's right. I mean, you know, these things are so varied in their descriptions, in their colors, in their flight, and the how they interact with other airplanes that it's hard to imagine that we're talking about all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said at the beginning, these these were just grouped in to any UFO sighting while, you know, these, these pilots were in the air, especially at night. Um, and then they were all called Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. But what could they have possibly been? And many people have tried to explain what happened, you know, using scientific uh, phenomena that occur um, naturally. Uh, or 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 trying to pawn it off on enemy enemy weapons. So let's let's talk about some of the theories of what people thought these things could have been and and sometimes still do um think that this is what they were. So based on their description, many people had the idea that these sightings could be a a weather phenomenon known as St. Elmo's fire, which Adam um mentioned earlier. Now this is not the uh, Emilio Estevez movie from the 1980s. <laughs> and unfortunately, movie. it's not the red Muppet lit on fire. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not that either. 
But St. Elmo's fire is is largely seen as a good omen by sailors. Is it's plasma that produces a spark. Right. It's it's independent of the clouds or the ground, which differentiates it from lightning. It and it's not uncommon for this spark to occur on or near ships' masts, as well as aircraft wings, and it produces a violet or blue glow. Now, and it's it, really it's really neat that I mean, just think about it. Just the friction of an airplane wing or a ship's mass through the atmosphere right. can create a static buildup enough to create plasma mm-hmm. like that. That's, that's cool. Yeah, it is very cool. And because it was cool and well-known, it was considered plausible, you know, by a lot of folks that St. Elmo's fire explained these sightings, especially in these descriptions where they said that it, the thing appeared on their at their wing at the, mm-hmm. at the tip of their wing or something like that and stayed with them of course that's exactly what St. Elmo's fire would would have done right um and and I'm sure some of these sightings were probably St. Elmo's fire but not all of them because St. Elmo's fire doesn't just zip around and fly away and do all that kind of stuff Right. It it sticks with the wing of the aircraft or the mast. It it has to it's not ball lightning. Right. It has to stay with the aircraft. Yep. But you gotta remember who was who was filing these reports. Mm-hmm. These are military pilots. These are people with, you know, a lot of training and a lot of hours in the air. They know exactly what St. Elmo's fire is and what it looks like. Right. And and any other weird weather occurrence, um, they they knew what it would have been and could have easily said, nope, that's what that was. And it's it's nothing else. Um, so they pretty much shut down the idea that foo fighters were St. Elmo's fire. Um Citing also the color differences and and the maneuver, uh, maneuverability, like I said just a minute ago, that was another thing. The color, St. Elmo's fire is, is purpley blue, okay? A lot of these are red or orange or yellow. Yeah, yep. So it's, it's now the, I'm sure there's some that were, like I said, they were absolutely St. Elmo's fire, but the majority of them, you know, we'll, we'll describe this, this orange glow, this, you know, reddish glow, which is inconsistent with what St. Elmo's fire is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for good reason, a lot of the pilots said, nope, that's not it. It was something else. But another go-to explanation was combat fatigue. Now, combat fatigue is... It's it's not just as easy as going, eh, this guy's got combat fatigue, this guy doesn't. I mean, it 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 doesn't yeah. work that way. I mean, and and I'm not saying that, you know, I've ever experienced combat fatigue. I've never served, but I have been under immense stress and I have been tired and I have thought I've heard things, seen things and and you realize 
I'm I'm really just tired. Right. You know, I, right. I'm not, this is not what's happening. I'm just really tired and the stress is just, this is how the, my brain is manifesting these things because it's overworked. Mm-hmm. Um, so imagine being a, a military pilot during World War II, how stressful, you know, that must have been. I mean, I, a thousand times worse than, you know, pulling an all-nighter for school or, you know, sitting up late to beat a deadline. You know, it's it's not the same, but, you know, if that amount of stress can cause you to have a, a visual hallucination, then, you know, combat fatigue absolutely could. Sure. I have so, one problem with it, though. Um, it's the same problem I have when somebody says mass hallucination. Mm-hmm. It's, we're going we're gonna to get there. Okay. All right. Uh, but it's just how does how does the brain how does your brain see exactly the same thing my brain does while under stress? Right. It doesn't make sense to me. And we've discussed no, it in other episodes. I, I don't think I don't like the term mass hallucination because we are such different creatures. You can put me and you, Matt in the same stressful situation and you and I think pretty similarly most of the time, Mm -hmm. but you put us in a stressful situation. Our brains are wired differently. We've been through different experiences in life. So our brains will hallucinate different things. Yeah. Now you get a hundred, 200 people in the same area or in war and one guy. Yeah. He may hallucinate balls of light chasing the ship, but the other other guys on his plane won't and somebody may envision smoky stover flying next to him <laughs> you know yeah and i've always thought that a, a mass hallucination would would require suggestion almost like yes. hypnotism yes that somebody is going to have to put that notion in your head so that what you think you're seeing is the same as somebody next to you because you both have the same suggestion. Right. Right. Okay. And I don't, I don't know that that's the case here. Um, and, and, and as I said, I, as I told Adam, we're, we're getting into this because, uh, you know, we, we, as we understand more and more about, you know, the impacts of war and combat on service members and how it can contribute to these, physical and psychological issues, you know, when they suggest that this is some type of collective psychosis or mass hysteria or, or a mass hallucination, you know, those type of things, as we said, you know, Adam and I don't really buy into them, but they're also exceedingly rare, Mm -hmm. but it's even more unlikely in these scenarios where reports of sightings were happening from all sides and independent of one another. So not only are you getting multiple sightings, you're getting them from different areas. So how how am I going to have a, a mass hallucination with somebody that's 500 miles away from me? Mm-hmm. You know, happening essentially at the same time or at least close enough to the same time where, you know, you could make that correlation. How is that possible? Um, but you know, as Adam said earlier, they, they did take this stuff seriously. 
And the Navy's Bureau of Medicine did respond to the multitude of reports by indicating that further study and education was needed on visual illusions and aviators' vertigo among nighttime pilots. Right. Uh, Dr. Ed, Edgar Vanaki, who was the premier flight psychologist on this particular project, summarized the need for a cohesive and systemic outline of the uh, epi- uh, epidemiological... Why can't I say that word? Epidemiological? Yeah. Ep- yeah, that word. <laughs> Epidemiology. <laughs> Dr. Edward... Edward... <laughs> Dr. Edgar Vanaki, who was the premier flight psychologist on this project, summarized the need for a cohesive and systemic outline of the epidemiology of aviators' vertigo because, in his opinion, aviators were not skilled in observing human behavior, thus making them poor judges of their own feelings and emotions, especially when experiencing an unknown anomaly during flight. So what he's saying, essentially, is, uh, is, is this. You're not trained to understand how the human brain works and how you would respond to different stressors in different situations. So... You don't understand what's happening, and you believe the illusion that you see. So it's it's almost like someone having a hallucination, but not being able to understand that it was a hallucination. So he's saying if he was in that situation, he would have a different outcome? Yeah, essentially. You know, that if you had, because he's if you quote had enough training smarter. and education that you would be able to realize, oh, this is just something, you know, I'm experiencing aviator's vertigo. I'm experiencing a visual illusion. I, but I think by nature of it being called aviator's vertigo, that an aviator would know about that. And I mean... They know about other conditions that happen to aviators and pilots under stressful conditions because they or their uh, their buddies have experienced it. Yep. So I, I I'm at a loss for what to say politely about this theory. Yep. I don't I don't like it. I, I think it's derogatory to the, the pilots. There you go. It's it's derogatory. It's condescending. Um, but understand the, the era that we're talking about. And and there was kind of an attitude where physicians were like, we're smart. You're dumb. Yeah. You know, you let us handle this. We're going to tell you what's really going on because yeah. we're the educated ones and you're not. I've been to school. (laughs) There was an attitude there, you know, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, in the, in the forties, um, you, you were going to see that, you know, it's like, that's, that's where that term comes from. Nay, who's the doctor here? Um, you know, it's just, it's like Theodoric of York. Hey, it looks like you need a good bleeding. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm already bleeding. Hey, (laughs) who's the barber here? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, remember, you remember that? Um, yeah. But anyway, he goes, Vanaki goes on to say um, that when experiences are passed on anecdotally from generation to generation, the stories can take on a more mysterious connotation. For example, if your grandfather tells you that holes in the yard are made by little gnomes with shovels that come out at night and you have no knowledge of moles or groundhogs, you believe that little shovel-wielding gnomes are indeed to blame. So his idea was we educate pilots on what Foo Fighters most likely were, and that would take the mystery out of the stories. And then they would just stop seeing them? Right. I mean, I... I, I, Well, I don't think it would be that they would necessarily stop seeing them, they would understand that what they're seeing is not mysterious. Wow. But I'm like, there's too many, uh, too many possibilities of what it could be to just give somebody the tools to say, it's not an alien. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's not this, it's not that. So it must yep. be Mike. That sounds well, good, but I don't know I how say, well that sir. goes into practice. Yeah. You are experiencing aviation vertigo. Well, let me ask you there, there, Hoss, have you ever flown a plane? Well, no, but I've been educated. Okay, so you've never flown a plane in war. No, but I studied stuff in a book once, <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah, essentially. You know, that's what we're looking at. Yeah. I don't like it. I'm I, sorry. I, I'm not a I fan like of it either. Um, But then... Of course, there's the idea that this was, in fact, a weapon developed by Nazi Germany. Now, this one has a little bit more teeth to it. Now, some placed blame on the Nazis as a collective entity, but others had a specific name in mind. Werner von Braun. Sure. Now, the then 32-year-old aeronautics engineer led the development of the V-2 rocket, which was the first ever long-range ballistic missile. Now, First thing to hit uh, outer space, too. Yeah. So Braun was regarded as a prodigy in this field, and he was thought by many to be capable of never-before-seen technology. Yeah, he absolutely was. Mm -hmm. His intelligence was so sought after, in fact, he was one of the 1,600 German scientists and engineers brought to the U.S. for the government employment following World War II as part of Operation Paperclip. Von Braun would go on to lead the development of the Saturn V rocket that took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon. Yep. So, and, and we've talked about Werner Von Braun on the show before. Um, yep. So I, I realized we kind of poo-pooed the idea that it was a weapon because... The Germans and the Japanese were reporting similar things. So we're thinking if the enemy says uh, we see it too, then it's probably not anything they created if they don't know what it is and they're no. being truthful. But there is an idea that, you know, the, the Germans didn't necessarily share everything they were working on with Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely. You know, so if if they had um, some top secret uh, uh, projects 
done by these these aeronautics and and rocket scientist guys they're not going to tell all the people hey you know we're working on these rockets or we're working on these special weapons no they're not well um and uh, go ahead oh i was gonna say and the germans they did at that time they were working on wunderwaffe which Uh, was the the wonder weapons so they were trying to create a a spaceship per se it was a a circular type craft Mm -hmm. that flew with the the human in the center and and they were coming up with these wunderwaffe things thanks to people like Werner von braun but like you said, they I'm sure if they had developed this thing, they wouldn't go tell their normal everyday German fighter pilot mm-hmm. about these mm-hmm. things. They it, they would have no need to know, so they wouldn't be told. Yeah. The only thing that keeps me from thinking that that's what it could be is hindsight, knowing what we know now, mm-hmm. we're still seeing them. So yeah. I'm not convinced that a Wunderwaffe would still be, unless it was like a, a an autonomous self-replicating thing that they made that is now mm-hmm. just taken over and is still flying around and and out of their control right you know yeah but i i, I think it it was highly possible at the time i just don't think that's what it is now but mm-hmm. I, I can understand why people would think this could be German because yeah. like, like you were saying, Werner von Braun, I mean, he was a genius. He yeah. helped get us to the moon. He created the, the first long range rocket. So it, it's, I see where they, they would think that. Yeah. And, uh, author, uh, Renato Vesco, um, brought up this theory that the Foo Fighters were a new Nazi secret weapon in his work, Intercept UFO, which was reprinted in a revised English edition uh, called Man-Made UFOs, 50 Years of Suppression, which was published in 1994. Now, Vesco says that the Foo Fighters were, in fact, a form of ground-launched, automatically guided, jet-propelled flak mines called fewer balls or fireballs the device which was operated by special ss units apparently resembled a tortoise shell in shape and it flew by means of gas jets that spun like a catherine wheel around the fuselage now miniature klystron tubes inside the device in combination with these gas jets created the Foo Fighters' characteristic glow and spherical appearance. Now, a crude form of collision avoidance radar ensured that the craft would not crash into another airborne object, and an onboard sensor mechanism would even instruct the machine to depart swiftly if it was fired upon. Now, the purpose of the fewer ball, according to Vesco, was twofold. The appearance of this weird device inside a bomber stream would, and did, have a distracting and disruptive effect on bomber pilots. 
And Vesco alleges that the devices were also intended to have an offensive capability. Electrostatic discharges from the Klystron tubes would, as he says, interfere with the ignition systems of the bomber's engines, causing the planes to crash. So not having read uh, Vesco's book, um, he he puts forth some evidence that this is what it what it most likely was. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no other evidence that they were actually using these and that this was indeed what it was, even if it was in a in a in a test mode. You know, and and what what pilots were seeing were were actually tests to to see if it would work. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to say that this this is compelling if it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm with Adam. I I think this might could explain some of them at the time. It it doesn't explain all of them, especially. One where a, a cigar-shaped um, craft was seen. So it's, it, they're not all exactly the same. If, it's, if this is accurate, sure. I think there probably could have been you know, some of these that were seen by pilots. And by this time, everything is a Foo Fighter if you don't know what it is. Um, so they may have gotten looped in there too. Um, but they never attacked. Yep. There's there's no indication that it ever attacked. So that makes me feel like if it was a weapon, then it was still in testing. It it wasn't fully yeah. operational to be ne- to necessarily be a, a an attack weapon. It was And that could explain why other German pilots didn't know about it. They were just testing it out. That's right. Yeah, again, they're not going to tell everybody. We got nope. these top secret fireballs, you know. And and all of a sudden, Japanese are seeing them. Other German pilots are seeing them, and they're going, "Hey, we see the same stuff, and we don't know what it is either." Mm-hmm. But while some still like this idea, aviation experts and eyewitnesses both support the idea that the the Luftwaffe had nothing that could even compare to what the Foo Fighters could do. Right. So, despite some close encounters, none of the airmen had ever seen any mechanical parts in these objects, nor did they ever pick up anything on radar. So if these things were indeed what Vesco describes, you would pick that up on radar. I mean, we're, yep. we're talking about a, a metal object. I mean, yep. you know, it, some- it, it would certainly be on radar. It's not like you, you wouldn't pick up a plasma ball on radar necessarily mm-hmm. but you would definitely pick up uh, a metal orb flying through the sky right because that's basically what airplanes are it's just metal shells yeah, yeah. so big, you would you definitely tubes, see you know? it yep but it, the other thing too is if it was that what kind of controlling mechanism would they have to be able to pace airplanes yeah at 200 plus miles an hour and stay yeah. on their wingtip and all this. It it seems like that would be difficult to manufacture even today, let right. alone then. I mean, you look at drone technology today, and it's amazing. 
Mm -hmm. It is amazing what you or I could go out and purchase and fly around our neighborhood. I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, the the technology with some of these high-end drones, it's amazing. I mean, I've seen seen drone footage where they have flown so far away from the person that's controlling it and and high-definition cameras. I mean, it's, it's just, it blows me away that not that the technology is there, but that it's available to you or I. Right. Yeah. I was going to say that the, obviously the military has stuff like that and better. Yeah. But yeah, that you and I could go buy one for the right amount of money is pretty awesome. But you think about that. This, this, this type of drone technology has only been around available to us for, you know, maybe, maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we say the military's had technology like this for probably the last 30, 40 years. Um, we're still not that far, you know, for, and, and I've, I, you know, are, are they going to be able to control something well enough at that speed from a distance to, to mirror, a, a you know, a bomber or a, or a fighter jets flight. Even now what we've unlikely. got. Yeah, what we've got wouldn't be able to do it. Military drones may be able to, um, but military drones are also quite large, and they're not cylindrical. Yeah. They look like small aircraft. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think even even if you had something then, you would be able to pick it out. It wouldn't be surrounded by glowing plasma. Yeah. I, I don't assume. And it probably would have been picked up on radar in 1944. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So if you've listened to our ads for any length of time, then you know we are fans of HelloFresh. Well, we're also fans of Every Plate. And Every Plate is now owned by HelloFresh. And Every Plate and HelloFresh, along with their other subsidiaries, have come together to form one company with a wide array of offerings and all price points for you to enjoy. And with every plate, you can experience full plates and full, fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. And the holidays are upon us, so give yourself and your wallet a break. Enjoy delicious, affordable meals delivered right to your door and ready to go in just six simple steps. It's amazing and we all need this during the holidays. We've all got so much cooking and planning and present wrapping and people seeing and all sorts of crap that we don't need to spend any more time than necessary planning and cooking meals. So order from every plate and that will help you out. You can get it done real quick and for cheap. Yeah. And, and speaking of cheap, think of it this way. One meal from every plate is about the same price as one cup of coffee. And it's probably cheaper than that pumpkin spice latte you drink, Adam. No kidding. That half-calf, super foam, double choco, (laughs) frou-frou coffee. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just making something up. Go ahead. I don't even know. I can't (laughs) order anything like that. It's like I just want coffee. Right. Black coffee, thanks. But you know what? If If I'm paying for this coffee, I could be buying an entire meal from every plate. No kidding. So let every plate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a delightful price. 
So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week and swap proteins, veggies, and sides to your liking. Thinking of family, friends, or loved ones this season? Give them the gift of every plate. It absolutely won't disappoint them. Right. Because I know my family goes nuts every time they come home and see that every plate box sitting on the porch. Oh, no. It'd be a They're, great they gift. They are super excited. If you yeah. if somebody decides to gift you with every plate, they have literally fed you in one of the most fun ways possible for a long time. It's like that saying, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Give a man every plate and you feed him for months. <laughs> that's that that's that old saying. Yeah, you know, that, old, the, that, that old adage <laughs> you know, from biblical times. So Graveyard Tales listeners can try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering our code Graveyard 179. That's G-R-A-V-E Y-A-R-D. One seven nine. That's right. Get started with every plate for just a dollar seventy nine per meal. You can't do that at a fast food restaurant. All you've got to do is go to everyplate.com and enter our promo code Graveyard One Seven Nine. G R A V E Y A R D and the numbers one seven nine. I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, modern technology, you might could have, you know, uh, cloaking mechanisms that would prevent it from showing up on radar or make it appear like it was an anomaly or a, a bird or something. I always remember the, you know, the, you remember the silent drive in the hunt for red October? Yeah. Vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, where the guys to kind of describing it. And he's like, you know, it's not a hundred percent silent said, but it, it operates at such a frequency that the radar detects it as magma displacement or whales humping or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's a, yeah. it's a, it would be considered a natural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe now or, or in the last 20, 30 years, we had, we've got technology to cloak something like that. But I don't think they had that back in World War II. Yeah, not that anybody is aware of. But So since none of these showed up on radar, you, you got to think, okay, maybe that, maybe it's not man-made. That's the biggest thing that stops me from thinking that it is a Wunderwaffe or anything of the sort is because it wasn't picked up on radar. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's a way to build something that large that can pace an aircraft like that, have it surrounded by a glow of plasma, and then not be seen on radar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there have been a number of investigations into these sightings over the years. In sure. nineteen In 1953... Right around the time that the U.S. and Canada actually decided to try to build a flying saucer of their own, um, the CIA had put together a group of scientists to give their insight and possible explanation as to what the Foo Fighters were. But unfortunately, this did not yield any official response. So 
they couldn't come up with an answer that was good enough for them to say, this is what our official position is on what Foo Fighters were. Right. Which could should kind of tell you, mm, don't know that it was man-made. That's right. I so, don't know. So theoretically, we know just as much about Foo Fighters today as they did then. You yep. know? I mean, we, we know it was a glowing ball. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and as Adam said, with, with the sightings of these glowing light or fireball type objects still occurring today, um, alongside other documented aerial, uh, uh, experiences, um, we may at some point be able to figure out what, what they were or what, what they could have been. Maybe. Um, yeah. But, but as of now, we still don't know. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like what we talked about midway through the episode, it just kind of popped into my head. And, and I think I need to stick with that as a theory is that if it's not off planet technology, then perhaps it's, parallel universe technology or breakaway civilization technology that is some type of scouting thing mm-hmm. that when our air superiority changed to what we had during World War II, they had to go check it out. Right. And they were testing our abilities with what we could do. They were just trying to see what we had. Yeah. And I think that to me, that's where I kind of end up landing Mm -hmm. is that it was some kind of scouting thing brought on by our change in aircraft. Yeah. I like that idea. I like that theory. I, I think I can get behind that. Um, but honestly, I, I have I have no idea. I have no idea. I I don't I don't believe that it was something man made. I I really think that if it was man made, that it would have shown up on radar. Mm-hmm. And hundred percent, yeah. They they would have been able to to shoot down more than one of them. Yep. Um. And 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 they would have been able to collect more information about what it was if it was a man made object. Right. Um. And seeing as how we didn't have any other kind of aircraft that could do what that what those things could do, it it just doesn't fit. Um, no. And then when you know I, I've already made said my piece about you know combat fatigue or or aviators vertigo. I, I just I I don't I, I don't think that explains all of it. I think it could explain some of them, especially yeah, if you if maybe. you already had the suggestion in your head about Foo Fighters that you might you might see St. Elmo's fire or you might see something else that you report as being a Foo Fighter. You don't know what it is. Um but I it doesn't it doesn't cover all of them. And and again we're talking about a group of highly trained individuals. You know right. they've spent a lot of time in the air. They understand what's up there. Now I know that flying at night is a lot different than flying during the day. Um, and I know that that's going to contribute to some of the confusion, but it's just, it's, it's still just so mysterious 
that none of these things showed up on any any kind of radar. I just I can't right, but, I can't I can't believe that it's a man made thing. No, but these were the the some of the best people in the world at the time for flying at night. Mm-hmm. The, the you know the, the these were the 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 best in the world. Yeah. So you, you can kind of take out some of that that might be attributed to lack of experience flying at night. And I know one thing that came up when I was researching this was that they took fighter pilots into a dark room and then were flashing lights in their eyes and then asking them what they saw. And what they were trying to prove is that air burst from guns, you know, uh, land air artillery was causing them to see like, okay, you look at a bright light and then look away. Mm -hmm. You see a ball of light in your vision, but they, they did get that ball of light in their vision, but it didn't do or act the same way that these Foo Fighters did. It didn't maneuver around. It didn't phase in and out and, you know, tail them or anything like that. So, kind of had to debunk that but they were trying to say that it was just your eyes playing tricks on you from bright lights flashing on you at night but again i think these highly trained aviators would know oh i just got kind of blinded by that that shot Mm -hmm. and that's what that is you wouldn't have multiple aircrafts full of these military men on all sides thinking that because they got a little bright light in their field of vision, oh my gosh, it's an alien. Mm, right. You know, I, I mean, I'm not an, an aviator and I understand that. And I, I just, I go back to how these people spent way more time in the air fighting under these conditions than the doctors or scientists did. And the doctors or scientists are trying to say, oh, well, you know, because I read a book about uh, some stuff, then I know more than you about what you're doing. And it it bothers me. And I, I, I think it's, like I said earlier, derogatory, and they're trying to discredit sightings by these people and that's what leads to some of the stigma that we have around sightings nowadays and even then you didn't want to come forward with your sighting because you're going to have some starched collar jerk telling you that oh you you're you're nuts you don't know what you saw (laughs) and it's irritating and and frustrating yeah to say the least, but um, what do you guys think? I mean, I'm 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 hoping that most of you realize when you saw Foo Fighters that we weren't going to talk about the band. Um, Probably, <laughs> I'd say if you're listening to this show, you already knew. Um, but well, if you made it this far and still think we're talking about the band, <laughs> they, you got That's problems. Right. Now, we, now we got problems. Um, but let us know what you think. You know, um. 
maybe some of you had grandparents uh, or great grandparents that served in World War II. Uh, maybe they've got stories about when this would happen, whether they were an aviator or not. These stories went around, so people knew. Maybe maybe they remember uh, these things coming out at the time. Uh, we would love to hear it. And one of the best places to do that is in our Facebook group. And you just go on Facebook, search Graveyard Tales, and you'll find our group. Uh, we affectionately call it the Graveyard, and we've got thousands of members that are just there to share these stories, have a good time, tell some jokes, and it's 100% safe. You're not going to get made fun of. You know, everybody just wants to hear these 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 great, great stories uh, and experiences. So please, you know, come on there and, and jump in that group if you haven't already. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter. Again, just search Graveyard Tales. Um, as Adam mentioned, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It does help bring us up the chart, and it does bring more people into the graveyard. Um, and you can check out our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. Uh, on our website, you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. You can listen to the show, and you can become a patron. Um, and we like to thank everyone who has donated to the show. It really does keep Adam and I going. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and as he mentioned at the top of the show, our $10 patrons get the video of us making the show. Uh, so you get to see all of our flubs and mess ups and retakes. Um, and, and you get to kind of hear the chatter that Adam and I do back and forth. Um, uh, you know, when, when we're, uh, when no one's listening, uh, <laughs> When we think the mics are not on. <laughs> That's right. We always know they're on. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I think that, that covers Foo Fighters pretty well. Adam, what do you think? I think so. I think we know just about as much as we did when we started it, which is <laughs> what we thought. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh. So, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Now, see, I would have just said Rudolph by default, and I would have got it right, but for the wrong reason. Yep, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I got to do this when it's his last name. I got to do that one. <laughs> I'm going to start calling him Rudolph from now on. Yeah, yeah.